Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, find with me the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. So you get to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then Joshua, and then Judges, and then Ruth, the book of Ruth. Well, we are starting the book of Ruth. We've just finished our uh, series in the book of Esther. And there's a reason why I put those two together, not because the main characters are women, not because they're both Old Testament books, but because they, they talk about very similar themes. And, and uh, our time in the book of Esther over the last couple of weeks, couple of months, has prepared us in a lot of ways to receive this gospel-saturated story of Ruth and Naomi. God is a, a little more explicitly present than he was in Esther, but not much more. So you're not going to see a ton of references to the Lord, uh, although he is there. Uh, but, but overall, in the book of Ruth, just like in the book of Esther, we're to read this story, we're to study this story with our eyes peeled for God's loving providence working behind the scenes. But God's good work of salvation and redemption in the book of Ruth must be set in its proper context. The story of Ruth takes place in a bleak time. So the title for our message this morning is A Bleak Introduction. A Bleak Introduction. It is not a good place. It is not a good time as we begin the story of Ruth. It takes place in a, a time with disobedience and judgment and exile and despair and emptiness and death. So if you have Ruth opened up in your Bibles, find verse 1 of chapter 1 with me. Let's just read the first part. It says, In the days... When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. All right, so just stop there. In the days in which the judges ruled is not just a timestamp. So if you're thinking about Old Testament history, you know, you have the, the first five books of the Bible, the, uh, the, the five books of Moses, and we know the story of the Exodus that Israel is delivered out from slavery in Egypt and they're brought by Moses into the promised land. And then Joshua comes as the, the conquering leader and he conquers all of the land. And once we get through Joshua, we come into the time of the judges. The judges is, uh, the time of the judges is this time in Israel's history before there were any kings. But unfortunately, the time of the judges is not just a time stamp. It's not just something that we should know about chronologically. It's also both a theological and a moral frame for us to set up to view what we're about to study. So just look back probably the previous page of your Bibles in the book of Judges, the last verse in Judges, Judges 21, 25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All right, so we're talking about the story of Ruth in a time in which there is no king in Israel and a time in which everyone seems to do what's right in their own eyes. No one is submitting themselves to the Lord. No one is following his good commands. They're doing whatever they want to do. This is not a good time in the history of Israel. The whole book of Judges, we will, obviously we're not studying Judges this this morning or, or this couple of weeks, but in long story short, the whole book of Judges is this repeated proclamation, this repeated message that mankind does not seek God and often finds themselves in struggling and suffering circumstances. So in that situation, we find our characters living and moving in the book of Ruth. So let's read our passage this morning. We'll pray and then we'll dive into this bleak introduction. Start with me again in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. God in heaven, we're so grateful once again to gather as the people of God to study your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you might give us eyes to see, hearts that are uh, focused and directed on beholding your glory, on seeing your gospel, being reminded of the great grace that you've given us in Christ. Help us to understand, help us to be transformed by your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's three big ideas I want you to see this morning as we walk through this bleak introduction. And if you're taking notes, the first one is this. Elimelech leaves the promised land. Elimelech leaves the promised land. Our story begins in Ruth, not with the character for which the book is named, not with Ruth, but with Elimelech and his family, Naomi, Mahlon, and Kilion. Elimelech's name literally means my God is king. The word Melech in Hebrew means king. The word Eli means God. So God, Elimelech means God is my king. But unfortunately, we start this book by seeing that Elimelech does not follow God's way. Like everyone else in the time of the judges, he goes his own way. We see that famine has struck the land. Famine has struck the hometown of Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread. So if the house of bread is suffering famine, this is not a good thing. Bethlehem was known for their granaries, known for their crops of grain and bread. Most scholars would say then that this famine, like many of Israel's troubles in the time of the judges, was due to disobedience. This was judgment on God's people by God. So in Judges, this is what would happen. Uh, Israel would sin, and then God would judge them. That would cause Israel to repent and seek redemption. And then oftentimes God would provide deliverance, either through a judge or another way. And that's the cycle of sin and suffering and supplication and salvation that would happen over and over again in the book of Judges. So if Bethlehem is in a famine, it means they are in a time of suffering, a time of slavery, Time of judgment. But in this case, Elimelech does not repent. He does not call upon the Lord. Instead, he decides to leave the promised land. He decides to leave Bethlehem and uproot his family and go outside the place of God's promise to Moab. Now, you may think that this desertion of the promised land into a place that has food, has bread, may seem like a matter of necessity. But traveling to Moab, of all places in the known world, should be understood by you and me as a rejection of God's ways because Moab was a place filled with those who hated the God of Israel. Listen to Ian Duguid. He's a Bible scholar. And he explains, for Israel, Moab was known for several things. None of them good. 
The Moabites had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. You see this in Genesis 19. Their king Balak had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. You see this in the book of Numbers. Their women had been a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness, seducing them to worship false gods. And they had recently oppressed the Israelites in the days of Eglon in Judges chapter 3. Does this sound like a place to go to raise your family? No, (laughs) this is the wrong place to go to find life. So Elimelech decides not to do what seems right in God's eyes, but decides to do what seems right in his own eyes. He doesn't follow God as his king, but he lives as though he were the king and takes his family out of God's promised land. And then the text tells us they remained there. You see that in verse 2. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. It's not that they were intending to stay there their whole life. It's not that they were meaning to uh, set up shop and live out the rest of their days in Moab. It just kind of happened that they lived there. They remained there. The grass seemed greener in Moab than in Israel. Elimelech led his family down a path that seemed right. But as we just read and as we'll study in just a moment, in the end, that path that seemed right led to death. And we as Christians often have the same kind of choices to make. In our lives, we can either choose to remain close to the Lord and follow his commands, or we can take a path that seems to lead us to pleasure or to comfort or to security or to some other desire of our heart. Sometimes our desire for happiness and God's call for holiness seems to go in opposite directions, right? There's a, there are decisions that you can make. There are things that you can do that can either lead you into holiness or into happiness, but oftentimes they don't seem to be going the same way. Like Elimelech, the question for us is, do we say that God is our king, but then live as though we ourselves are on the throne? Because the fact of the matter is many, many people who call themselves Christians live that way. Many, many Christians live their lives in such a way as though they say to the world, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, he is my king. But the way that they live their life, the way that they move around in their world, betrays the fact that they are the king. So Elimelech and his family leave the promised land. They sojourn to Moab and remain there for some time. And things seem to be going well. Their bellies are full. They're not starving. But God's judgment is coming for them. So the second point this morning is this. God's judgment provides an opportunity. God's judgment provides an opportunity. Look again at verse 3. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Scripture tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is God's kindness that leads you to become aware of your sinfulness, become aware of your need, and turn from your sin to follow God. And sometimes, because of our stubbornness and because of our hardness of heart, because of our spiritual death, suffering and heartache are often the required means for us to repent. In this case, Elimelech dies. He leaves his wife and two sons in a foreign land. This tragedy should probably be understood as the Lord's judgment, that he, as the head of his house, 
caused his family to leave God's promised land to find refuge in a pagan nation. For those Israelites who failed to uphold the law of Moses, over and over again we see in the Old Testament that the wage for their sins is death. They were under a curse for disobeying God's commands. But perhaps, perhaps Naomi didn't have a say in the matter. Right? The fact is, in those days, men were very clearly the authorities, very clearly the leaders. Wives regularly just followed after their husbands. And usually, in a godly home, this is a wonderful thing. But when a husband leads their family into sin, it becomes sin on top of sin. But perhaps Naomi had no choice in the matter. Perhaps Elimelech said, this is what we're doing. We're going to Moab. There's no discussion. I've made a decision. And so she left Bethlehem with her family for Moab. But now Elimelech is dead. Now she is left with her two sons. Literally, that word she was left in verse 3 means she was made a remnant with them. So now Naomi has a choice to make. God's judgment has provided an opportunity for her. Will she turn from this pagan land and go home? Will she go back with her two sons to the promised land? Will she go back to the place where God's blessing is to be found? Will she go back to the place that was promised to her and her family if she would follow after the Lord? Where will they go? What will they do? It reminds us, if we're honest, if we think about it, it reminds us of our own lives. Oftentimes, God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. He might have to allow certain things to happen to us, certain circumstances to befall us, certain sufferings that we have to experience, not to harm us, but to save us. Not to bring us condemnation and judgment, but to lead us out of death into life. Context and information is vitally important. I've, I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again if you haven't heard it. There's a pastor who said, um, if, if you uh, knocked me out in a back alley and I woke up and you told me that I'm missing part of my brain, that somebody had knocked me out cold and removed part of my brain, I would say, uh, this is not good. <laughs> uh, we should find this guy and arrest him because apparently he tried to kill me. Right? He removed part of my brain. He cracked my skull open. But if that person said, actually, I'm, I'm a brain surgeon, and we found on your MRI scan uh, a tumor, a cancerous tumor on your brain, and so we have to remove it because if we don't remove it, you will die. So if I said, hey, would you like to go to the back alley and have this person knock you out and remove part of your brain, you would probably say, absolutely not. But if I told you, hey, you have, a, you have brain cancer, and here's a surgeon who can remove this piece of your brain to save your life. Would you do it? You'd probably say, when's the next appointment? Like, I, I, want, I need that. I need to be wounded so that I might be healed. I need, to be, I need to be cut open a bit so that I can actually be saved, so I can continue to live. And it's the same with Naomi. God has judged her family. God has brought suffering and calamity upon her, not to harm her, but to save her. Like the book of Judges shows previously, God's judgment is supposed to lead his people to repent. It's ultimately so that he might save them and deliver them from their sins. Naomi knows that Moab is not the place for the people of God. She knows it is not the place for her children. She knows that it is not this place that has been given to her by a covenant. She knows that God's covenant with her people includes a land that she's already left. 
So when we, as Christians, when we are confronted with the reality of our disobedience, when we're found out, when we become aware of our sin, we have a choice to make. Will we continue in disobedience or will we turn from our ways? Will we repent? Because over time, a pattern of sin, a pattern of disobedience becomes easier and easier to maintain. And unfortunately for us, our sinful hearts don't want to turn to God, right? We, we sin because we want to sin. We, we sin because we desire the things that sin promises. Our sinful hearts don't want to repent. They don't want to turn away from God. The offer of redemption, as beautiful as it is, is something that we miss in our own capacity to see or understand. Even when confronted with sin, I know this is true in my own life, even when we're confronted with our sin, it's usually our pride that keeps us from admitting wrong and changing direction. We can't bear the idea that others' perspective of us would shrink. We, we don't want to ever put ourselves in a position where people think less of us, so we continue in our proud rebellion because we think that if we just keep on keeping on, people will still think as great that, th- that we're as great as we think we are. Naomi was left with her two sons, and we don't know how long they had chosen to live outside the camp. We don't know how long they had chosen to live in a voluntary exile from the promised land. But she must have figured that she was still okay, because she has two sons. She's lost her husband, but she has two sons in her life. She has two young men who can be a source of prominence, of support, of protection, of legacy. Surely these two boys could be her ticket to prosperity in Moab, even in her loss of her husband. I'll just give you an example. I was telling somebody this morning, uh, just so that you know that I am not uh, above the things that I teach. This morning was reading on being a pastor. I was reading a book on pastoral ministry and was both really, really encouraged and really, really convicted because as often is the case, uh, you and I in the Christian life, we walk with a limp. There are certain aspects of our lives that are healthy and strong. There are certain aspects of our lives that are usually weak and deformed. And so we walk kind of wobbly this whole Christian life. And I was reminded once again of of a way in which I walk with weakness that I need your forgiveness for. I'm really good at thinking about, um, at least I think I am, I'm really good at thinking about big picture. I'm thinking, I'm really good at thinking at the macro level. I'm really good at thinking about uh, kind of the broad vision for the ministry that the Lord has given me at Lakeview. But if I'm honest in comparison, I am relatively quite weak at intentionally wiggling my way into the individual lives of the sheep. And I needed to be reminded that as a shepherd, it's not just about leading a mass of people from one place to another, but it's getting to know the sheep. So I need your forgiveness that that I can do more in faithfulness to Christ by his grace to know you. And I feel like I know most of you. I feel like I have a relationship with most of you. But that's not something to rest on and act as though it's just something done and not to, not to manage anymore. So by God's grace, I hope that you'll be willing to, to hear me regularly, more regularly than before, as I ask you questions, as I try to get to know you, as I try to figure out what's going on in your life, as I can figure out how I might pray for you, how I might serve you. I needed this. I need to be reminded of my own weakness. I need to be reminded of the ways in which my desires lead me away from God's commands, not towards them. Naomi had the same choice to make. And in the end, 
It seemed good to her to stay, to stay in the land of exile, to stay away from God's promised land. And so that leads us to the third and final point this morning. Number three, Naomi remains in exile and judgment. As we start off this book full of gospel truth, full of deliverance and redemption, we have to begin the story by seeing how bleak things are. Naomi has decided to look at the judgment of God and the death of her, of her husband and say, I will continue to stay in the place outside of God's promise. Look at verse four. These, that is Naomi's two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. What seems right to a man leads to death. Malon and Kilion took Moabite, that is pagan wives, not God-fearing wives. And while not explicitly forbidden by the law of Moses to marry a Moabite, it is nonetheless very hard to believe that faithful followers of Yahweh would go seeking out a life partner, a soulmate, to, and, and do so by shedding their identity as Israelites. It would be really hard to fathom that in order to follow God well, I have to renounce my faith in him, renounce my practices of the law so that I can assimilate into a pagan land. I mean, this is, remember Esther, this is the whole allure of the world empire. Am I going to assimilate into the culture or am I going to retain my identity as a follower of Yahweh? They decided to assimilate. They married pagan wives, Moabite women. And things seem to be going okay, you know? Malon and Kilion, Orpah and Ruth, their mother and mother-in-law Naomi, living in Moab. But as the years went on, Naomi would have known that the fact that Orpah and Ruth were not bearing any children is a sure sign of God's judgment. In the same way that Bethlehem was left barren before they left for Moab, so too her daughters are barren, 10 years with no children. Naomi could see her lineage, her legacy, evaporating. And then... Her sons die. Then Malon and Kilion both die. And she is left once again. She becomes an even smaller remnant. But now the men are all gone. And look at verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. By the time we get to verse 5, Naomi doesn't even have a name. She's just the woman. All that's left in this sad, bleak introduction is an old, unfaithful widow and two pagan widows in a land that is exceedingly unkind to unprotected and unspoken for women. Here at verse 5, Naomi comes to the end of herself. As we'll see next week, Bethlehem's famine is being lifted. It's going away, which could only mean that God's judgment is being removed. And so she decides to make her journey home. We'll see that in verse 6. But at this point, this week, this morning, at the end of verse 5, all seems lost. Her husband are gone. Her children are gone. Her legacy is gone. Even her own name is gone. And she is surrounded by cursed pagans. So, so here's, here's, my, here's my argument for you. 
And for me, as we read the book of Ruth, Ruth is a super important character. But I think the main character of this story is Naomi. I think the one in which we see redemption come in its fullness will be for Naomi, the one who lost everything and yet is, as we'll see later on, restored to favor with God. And we know that Naomi's hope is not lost. There's still a way to be brought back before the Lord. The whole story of Ruth, like I said, is the redemption of Naomi. And it's why this beautiful story is so clearly connected to the gospel of Jesus. Because we, like Naomi, are burdened and cursed by the weight of our sins. All of us suffer that curse. But like Naomi, we are exactly the kind of people that Christ has come to redeem. Right? It's not that Jesus is looking for the just kind of bad people. He's looking for the spiritually dead which is all of us. We all bear the curse. We all are spiritually dead apart from him. We see in the book of Ruth that God is faithful to his people, chosen before the foundations of the world. His redemptive purposes, as we'll see for Naomi and her family, are unstoppable, even when it seems like all is lost. We read just a couple of weeks ago in equipping groups on Wednesday night, the story of uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son from Luke chapter 15. And that story of the prodigal son is a story that most of us are pretty familiar with. And so like the father of the prodigal son, watching and waiting for all of his wayward sheep to come home. The father is waiting, waiting for his children to come home. So for those in this room who are not believers, see the love of Christ beginning to unfold in this story. If you are honest with yourself and say, I, I, don't, I don't know Jesus, I'm not a follower of him, I haven't trusted him with my life, I haven't asked him to forgive me of my sins, if that's you, then, then I hope that as we go through the story of Ruth, we see the love of Christ beginning to unfold in the story. Only the sick need a physician, not the healthy. And only sinners who know their need will come to Christ to find rest for their weary souls. If you're a believer, though, If you're a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus in the room, but perhaps recognize some of your own story in Naomi's situation this morning, remember that today can be the day that you swallow your pride. Today can be the day that you start to come back home. Today can be the day when you return to the love of God who always forgives those who ask. You can know that you are never too far gone for his grace and his mercy. That's what the story of Ruth is all about. We need this bleak introduction to highlight the glories of redemption that are to follow. Hopefully for all of us in this room, we've experienced the glories of that gospel. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, I pray that you would, by your grace, focus our minds and hearts even now as we think about discussing this bleak introduction to the book of Ruth that we have to get through the bad news. We have to understand the, the dire straits that Naomi is in and the dire straits that we are in because of our sin. We have to understand those things so that we might see how glorious and wonderful and beautiful the, the light of the gospel really is. So Lord, help us to have good conversation, to encourage and to challenge one another as we spend our time together this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.